0: I remember when he was little, I remember so many times thinking, what must it be like to actually exist as a creature in such a perfect body? He just was perfection. And then when he was 18 months old, overnight, he just was at death's door.
1: Hello, I'm James Jacobson. Welcome to The Long Leash. We went back into our archives to bring you an interview with Australian investigative journalist Jane Cowan. With a lengthy career covering stories around the globe, Jane was ready to settle down and finally get a dog, a boxer dog to be precise. But what Jane didn't know is that her biggest assignment would be the one that set her on the path to save that dog's life. When Jane got Shiva, he was perfect in every way, a jovial, even-tempered, beautiful bundle of boxer puppy energy. But within the span of a few days, Shiva went from being perfect to being in so much pain that he couldn't even move his neck to eat or drink. He was diagnosed with an autoimmune condition and prescribed steroids as a treatment. But the drug damage that came from that decision set Jane on an investigative journey that would see her dive headfirst into the world of canine health and well-being as she worked to help heal Shiva. Stay tuned after our conversation for an update on what Jane is up to now. Jane Cowan, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You love dogs so much that you left your broadcast career to basically spend time with your dog and and to chronicle that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it didn't, um, it wasn't what I had planned to do. It was kind of one of those situations where Uh, Life gives you lemons and you make lemonade. What happened was my dog, uh, Shiva, who's a boxer, got really sick. He was 18 months old. He was in the prime of his life. Everything was fantastic. I'd moved home to Australia after living in the States for, you know, six years, being a correspondent, all of that. I was ready to get a dog and, you know, just have a, you know, a, a normal home life. Everything was going fantastic. And then when he was 18 months old, Overnight, he just was at death's door and vets didn't know what it was. We went through this hideous kind of week of trying to get a diagnosis so that some kind of treatment could begin. And um, you would think that was the worst of it. But once we got the diagnosis, then um, what turned out to be a year of treatment ensued. And that was actually a lot worse than the original uh, condition. It was, he was diagnosed with something. something what What did he have? It's called SRMA, which stands for Steroid Responsive Meningitis Arteritis, which is basically inflammation of the lining of the brain and the lining of the blood vessels. Hmm. And so it sort of began with him being listless. And then over several days, he couldn't bend down to reach his water bowl or food bowl. And then when he was examined he would react with extreme pain when his neck was bent to either side or up and down, which is the inflammation in the blood vessels and brain and whatnot. And he ended up having to have an emergency spinal tap because they wouldn't treat it without doing that to diagnose it. You know, by the time that happened, he was in so much pain that he was basically vibrating. looked like he was about to levitate. It was the most hideous week of my life, and and worst year of my life. It's the hardest thing I've ever been through because the treatment is um, high dose, long term steroids, prednisone, and that does a lot of damage.
1: Well, we'll get into the treatment in a moment, but at the point where he was diagnosed, when Shiva first started getting sick, you were still at the ABC.
0: Yeah,
1: and what were you doing there? You'd been there for twenty years. What were you doing?
0: Yeah. So I'd I'd um come back to, you know, my home in Australia and I was working on new and exciting projects where I was using photography to tell stories and writing long form kind of articles that would publish online on the ABC website, mm-hmm. telling, you know, small human stories is what I was trying to tell. I was wanting to do some more meaningful storytelling after years and years of news, you know.
1: And you'd been in news and you'd been a foreign correspondent, including here in the US.
0: Yeah. I, and at the time, I loved it. And I certainly love the States. I miss it every day, you know. But that was a totally different kind of work where you're just jetting in and out of stories. And most of the time, you have no idea what you're talking about. It's all very cursory and it gets pretty frustrating and repetitive, the news cycle, you know.
1: So, how did Shiva enter your life?
0: So, Shiva, I had wanted a dog the entire time. I grew up with dogs. We had the sort of classic Australian dogs growing up, a Kelpie and a cattle dog. And then I had had a boxer before when I was in my Mm twenties. And then once I got swept into the whole journalism thing, that meant so much moving around that having a dog and doing things like that was totally impossible. So the first thing I did when I got home and put down some roots was, right, I finally can get my dog. So, you know, I I had thought that I was going about it very deliberately and carefully and had researched and was going to do everything right with the care of this dog, you know, which is why it was such a um, shock to me when he got sick and why it didn't really make any sense to me that you know, I thought I had done.
1: What did you do? Well, paint the picture. You come back after years on the road, the U S where else were you assigned or stationed?
0: I had been in India before that. When I was in the States, I did a bit of work in South America as well, but mostly it was based in DC, but traveling throughout the States, covering whatever, you know, the big news story in America was and reporting that back to Australians.
1: So hard news journalist returns to her homeland. (laughs) Thinking, this is the time I'm going to finally get a dog. You do all the research to find the perfect dog. What kind of research and what went into finding the perfect dog?
0: (laughs) Well, I guess, um, you know, I knew I wanted a boxer, but I was careful about what breeder I chose. I didn't just get the first puppy that I loved. I tried Mm -hmm. to find one that had been, you know, where all the proper health testing of the parents had been done. All of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I had researched what I was going to feed him, and at that stage, as I understood it, the choice was sort of between what's going to be a good brand of kibble that's where I was at with my mm-hmm. understanding of dog nutrition at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I equated an expensive bag of dry dog food as being a good quality nutrition for my dog. So you know, I had thought I'd done the right thing there, I'd you know done the vet visits and would do all the necessary vaccinations. Um, I would do the worming. I'd worm for things that he might possibly have been maybe exposed to. I would. It was sort of like overkill, right? My mindset at the he time. He was, was your
1: was baby. That, he was your everything.
0: Oh yeah. I was ready for my life to revolve around this dog.
1: Tell me about the first day you brought Shiva home.
0: <laughs> oh God. He was perfect. You know, he's a white boxer with a brown, sort of brindly patch over one eye and the opposite ear is also brindle. He's just a gorgeous dog and he was perfect. And I remember when he was little, I remember so many times thinking, what must it be like to actually exist as a creature in such a perfect body? Because- you know, he's absolutely, he was beautiful. There was nothing physically amiss at all. He just was perfection. And he was, he was really a beautifully natured dog too. Like I didn't have any problems with him. Like the first night home, he slept all the way through, you know, like nothing about him was difficult. Mm -hmm. He was just a beautifully, the temperament, everything was perfect. And I just adored him. My biggest problems were having him not embarrass me at puppy school, you know? (laughs)
1: Okay, so what year was that, when you first got Shiva?
0: That would have been late 2016.
1: Okay. Fast forward, you're doing your work at the ABC, you're making these human interest stories, and you start to see Shiva have some early symptoms. When was that, and what were they initially?
0: Yeah, so it really happened pretty suddenly. One day he was in perfect health. Now that I look back at it, I guess there were things earlier. But at the time, it seemed like he went from being a young dog, not even into adulthood yet, um, still a puppy, to waking up one day and just standing there listless, you know, like a mm-hmm. a totally hyperactive boxer to listless dog overnight and being barely able to move and then progressively over several days being unable to bend his neck down far enough to eat or drink. Um, He wouldn't lie down. He was just standing there like it was more painful to lie down than to just stay standing up. I remember sort of having to prop him up with pillows and stuff so that he could remain in that position, but be supported.
1: How old was he at that time?
0: He was eighteen months. He was still a puppy.
1: So you're going back and forth to work, seeing this. You are you call sick. What what happened? Like, I mean, you you're seeing your dog so rapidly decline in health.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I pretty much called in sick from the get go. It was obvious that something was wrong. And when I, you know, when I first took him to the local vet, they couldn't identify what it was. And then over the course of, I think it was four days, I then was into the emergency vet, you know, in the middle of the night and blood tests and all these kind of things and taking him home. They still weren't sure what it was, but were starting to suspect that it could be this thing called SRMA, this meningitis. And then by the end of the week, he'd had a a spinal tap um, and all these other scans and they'd positively diagnosed it as this and begun treatment with prednisone
1: what was going through your head when they were sort of still figuring out whether or not it was meningitis when they were doing their tests
0: at that time i don't think i realized you know in the beginning before the symptoms progressed to be the extreme pain that he ended up in after four days you know it was i, I wasn't grasping just how bad it was i mean you can die from this thing mm-hmm. and so i didn't know any of that and At that time, I was the kind of owner who put a lot of, I think a lot of us, all of us probably, put a lot of faith in the vets. And I wasn't, you know, second guessing anything that they were doing or saying. I was just taking him to them, having him examined and waiting for them to tell me what to do. That's the space I was in at that time. And so, you know, it feels... Anyone who's had a sick dog, you know, I mean, you know, you feel completely helpless. You don't feel like you have the capacity to really help them, the expertise to help them, the knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so you're out of control because your ability to help your dog sort of depends on somebody else. So it was that it's a horrible feeling and extremely worrying, but I don't think at the time I grasped exactly how serious it was until he was in really bad pain by the end of that week and that was absolutely heartbreaking.
1: I think that out of control feeling and not being able to do anything is so frustrating and so exasperating for people.
0: Yeah and you don't even know where to begin because you know this isn't your area of expertise and you don't know you're really just at the mercy of the vets to know their stuff and to be able to help your dog and to care as much as I remember, you know, begging, (laughs) begging the emergency vets to, because there was only a certain number of procedures that they could do that day to, and he may not have been able to be, you know, fit in to their schedule to get the spinal tap. And until he got that, they wouldn't start giving the treatment. And he was in this awful pain. Um, And I remember, you know, in tears begging them to Please, like, just get my dog seen, like, and, you know, yeah, it's it's a horrible feeling, isn't it?
1: Had you ever had that feeling of disempowerment before?
0: No, I don't think so, because, you know, I, I haven't had kids or anything like that. I haven't had anyone in my family be seriously ill. So this was the first creature that I loved, that animal or human, that was in a really bad way. And, you know, with everything about my life up until that point had been really straightforward. And as a journalist, you know, the problems had always been somebody else's, Mm -hmm. like I was exposed to traumatic events and that kind of stuff, but it was never my trauma. I was telling other people's worst days of their life and now it was my worst day of my life. So yeah, it was um, an awful feeling.
1: When you did resort to tears and and pure emotion to get them to do the Spinal Tap,
0: what, what was going on? I was just desperate. I mean, I, I don't think it wasn't calculated or anything. It was just, I was um, in total panic and I just couldn't lose this dog and I needed them to help him. And you know, you're very conscious that you're just one of, your dog is just one of many serious cases that an emergency like vet hospital has on their plate. Mm. And for him to be a priority for them you know, God knows what he was competing against at what other emergencies. So yeah, it, it's, um, you just want them to care as much as you do.
1: So they do this spinal tap, they confirm that it is this type of meningitis, this type of inflammation of the brain. And then they start the course of medicine. What was that?
0: Yeah. So the treatment, the standard treatment for this is very high dose immunosuppressive levels of prednisone. Which is a you know a steroid, and for they had told me at that time it would be like six months treatment, and to prepare yourself because it's rough.
1: And what did they say was going to be rough about the prednisone
0: treatment? I think they had said that it would be lengthy. They were more saying that the condition itself was a serious one, and that you know you could die from the meningitis itself. Not all dogs made it. Mm-hmm. When it came to the actual prednisone, the only side effects that they had put in front of me at the beginning was that, you know, he'll drink a lot and pee a lot, that kind of level of side effects. And that was, you know, the very tip of the iceberg, as I discovered, it's a lot worse than that when you're, even when you're using it at low levels. But if you're using it over, as I've found out over a long duration, yeah, that's where you get it is a synthetic version of cortisol is what prednisone is. So uh, the hormone produced by the adrenal glands and it impacts just about every process that goes on in the body. So you get some really dramatic and hideous effects.
1: I have heard prednisone described as sort of a miracle drug that has a very strong double edge to it.
0: Yeah, I'd say that's accurate. It it felt like a miracle when he first got it. Mm-hmm. He transformed within, you know, a few hours. Mm-hmm because it really masks a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it it is a wonder drug. It does feel like a miracle, but you've gotta be very careful with it because yeah, it has a very hefty downside, one that we are still now years later trying to recover from.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about when you started realizing that it's, hey, it's a little bit more than drinking and peeing. What were some of the symptoms that you started seeing? And Shiva.
0: Yeah. So for maybe two weeks, he seemed fine. Like he was, you know, he was working and the symptoms of the meningitis were knocked out immediately. And then after that, things got, started going downhill and went <laughs> just progressively downhill from then on. So he, what were the symptoms? I guess his body, the obvious ones were his, his body began to change. He became completely obese and had a huge pot belly, his face changed, he hollowed out under the eyes and he just, he looked appalling. So that was the obvious surface stuff. And and mm-hmm. still even those side effects are, you know, well known and the pot belly type thing is, that's only the surface of it though, because what's actually going on, what the pot belly is is a sign of is your dog being in a Cushingoid state, which is basically like having Cushing's disease mm-hmm. because you have an oversupply of cortisol because you've got all the prednisone in the system. So it's like having Cushing's. So, you know, you see the pot belly, but what's really going on is a, a whole lot of other stuff in the metabolic processes of the body that Mm -hmm. that is where you end up with the long-term sort of damage so you know and then other things started happening like strange things he got a sort of a sore on his elbow Hmm. which the neurologist was like oh it's probably a like a bed sore or something like that but it broke open and it had it was oozing like a chalky sort of substance and Hmm. In the end, you know, we worked out that it was actually this thing called calcinosis circumscripta, which is... um,
1: Calcinosis circumscripta.
0: Yeah. Look, I learned more than I ever wanted to know about all these (laughs) medical conditions, but uh, it's related to a condition called calcinosis cutis, which is more common. And it is a known side effect, again, of prednisone. Mm where in the case of what the kind that Shiva had, the body starts laying down calcium phosphate, like lumps of it in the subcutaneous tissue, which is basically like laying down bone, like hard, you know, bone-like substance. So that was the first, the sore on his elbow was the first sign of that. He then began having similar sores on his tongue. So he was bleeding in the mouth. He had his, uh, was bleeding from the gut You know, he had diarrhea, bloody diarrhea, like all sorts of stomach upset, just everything you can imagine of the body going haywire. And when at the worst point, probably maybe five months into treatment, he could barely stand. He could barely get up. His liver was so swollen that you could feel it through his side. We had him scanned at that time because he had a lump and, you know, again, the neurologist didn't know what it was. It was a swollen liver and a known side effect of prednisone is, it's liver inflammation, the liver enzymes go haywire. And yeah, it was a direct consequence of, of the treatment. And none of this was related to the original condition that had been knocked out in the first couple of weeks.
1: So these were all side effects of the Prad? Yeah. So you sort of became a dog health nerd out of necessity and through this process, but somehow you decided to share your story. What was the moment when you said, hey, this is something I want to share with people?
0: I just kind of felt compelled to do it because through all of this, I guess, you know, Shiva was getting worse and worse. The vets didn't know what to do. I felt like I was going to lose him unless something changed. Hmm. They didn't have any answers. So that's what made me start to research not only the condition that he had, but the treatment protocol that was being applied. And that's when I, I, you know, realised he'd stayed on the highest dose for three times as long, you know, and when at the point where he was his worst, when he could barely walk, that's when I really started to engage with the decisions that were being made and stopped just doing what the vets were saying to do and started sort of researching the drugs and what was going on. And so what I realized at that point too, was that where he had really gone downhill, it was where he had been put on a second immunosuppressant drug, cyclosporin. Mm-hmm. And when I looked into that, it turns out that those two drugs, prednisone and cyclosporin, when they're used together, they each increase the effect of the other. It's called like potentiating the Mm -hmm. they each increase the effect of the other. And
1: the sum is greater than the whole of its parts.
0: Totally. In a good way. Synergy. Yeah. But in a bad way as well. All side effects are, you know, worsened. So it was only because at that point I was engaged with the decision making that I insisted that we stop the cyclosporin and then he was better within half a day, like was coming up again.
1: So can a lot of this just be attributed to, like, I presume a bad veterinarian or a bad vet tech?
0: The only conclusion that I've been able to, the only sort of sense I've been able to make of it, is that there's a readiness to prescribe drugs, but much less familiarity or ability to deal with the side effects that they cause when things go wrong. So, you know, it's with everything from antibiotics to heavy-duty drugs like prednisone, they are very readily dispensed. But when it comes to dealing with the side effects that they quite often actually cause, you know, vets are less good at that. Hmm. And we felt very much on our own. And once I'd gone through that and I had done such research for my own dog's sake, I was then in possession of all this knowledge (laughs) that, I wanted other people that I thought other dog owners that I wished I had known at the start. And that's what compelled me to put it out there. And so, you know, I began blogging, documenting what was going on with Shiva. You know, the first article I did was what prednisone will do to your dog's body. This is what prednisone will do. And I documented and I had pictures and descriptions of every single side effect that we had had happen to us, you know, and then when we were coming off the prednisone finally, a whole range of other strange things then started happening to him as he detoxed, as I now understand it, it's detox from that drug. So, you know, delightful topic to talk about. He had mucus in his poop, mm-hmm. you know, just unbelievable amounts of it, which ordinarily the veterinary response to that is to, that you know, medicate for, <laughs> like to give you metronidazole or yeah. Yeah, like flagel it's also known as, mm-hmm. to give you an antibiotic for that. But by that point, I had understood enough to recognize that that symptom was part of a detox process and that it wasn't about medicating it. It was about letting it run its course and, you know, come out the other side. So, yeah, it was it was wanting to share all of those things with other people so that they didn't have to go through what we did.
1: In this case, quite literally in the form of mucusy poop. Well, on that lovely note, we are going to take a quick break right here, but when we come back, we will talk more about how Jane Cowan turned her mind to researching Shiva's condition, and she'll tell us about her book,
2: Super Canine. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Ooh, every day with you is like a day at the beach, and I want to many beach days as possible i want to run i want to sniff Ooh, i want to find a good stick to carry oh i want to roll in the grass oh and warm my belly in the sun oh i want to walk with you run with you sleep with you eat with you and when i eat with you i want ever pop. The green, grassy, beef liver smell wakes my senses. Oh, you may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy. It infuses any food you give me with healthy life vibrancy. Oh, I can feel it. Ever pup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. I'm so grateful to be your dog and for the ever you give me? So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day.
1: We are back with Jane Cowan. So, Jane, how did you do this research? How did you gain your honorary veterinary education?
0: Yeah, I mean, every way that I could get my hands on information, I did it. So. It's everything from reading veterinary journals, which we can all do, you know, sometimes you have to pay to get access to an article for 24 hours or something like pay 30 bucks to get access to it, you know, but quite a lot of information actually is available there and gettable in veterinary journals, if you can sort of manage to wade your way through and make sense of it. So that it was a lot of the most useful information though came from other dog owners.
1: We're in the vet journals. Do you have a biology background or a medical background at all?
0: (laughs) Many years ago, I uh, began to study to be a doctor Ah. and dropped out, you know, within a semester. So I have a, I guess in a way I have a science background, but it was probably more the journalism that was helpful in terms of the orientation to asking questions and to wanting to understand why and that kind of thing. But it was more than the veterinary journals, where the most useful information came from that really changed the game for us was the information was and the the small nuggets of information from this owner here, this owner there, that would really connect with what you were going through and give you uh, a hint about, you know, where the solution might be.
1: And how did you find them, especially, you know, the main disease that you were treating Shiva for is something that is as you say, pretty exotic and pretty rare. How did you find these people who had that and also had the prednisone issue?
0: Well, as rare as the meningitis is, there's actually a Facebook group full of owners whose dogs have had it Mm. and are going through it. And there are sort of several different kinds of meningitis that are all autoimmune. And when you encompass those dogs as well, there's Two Facebook groups full of owners who've had this experience and where the treatment is prednisone and other immunosuppressive drugs. And so, yeah, those the experiences of those owners, when you join the dots between, you know, you've got a lot of case studies there.
1: So your resources were Dr. Google and uh, Facebook initially, and then you also did the veterinary journals.
0: Yep, and, you know, other things like there's a group in the UK called the Canine Immune Mediated Disease Awareness Group. Again, run by one woman Mm -hmm. who began by having a dog that was affected by one of these autoimmune conditions treated with prednisone. But there's a wealth of information there that's been accumulated over decades.
1: This is one of the more extraordinary things about the internet now is that you can find whatever medical issue you want. You can find real on-the-ground people who are dealing with it both on the medical side or the veterinary side, as well as uh, dog lovers who have gone through it.
0: You can, and you can find out what their vets told them. So then you've got access to sort of another veterinary slant on it. But you can also, through the internet, get access to other specialists, you know, on the other side of the world. So you can see who's written an article about the protocol for using prednisone to treat this particular condition your dog has and then find that specialist where they work in their veterinary clinic on the other side of the world and, you know, email them and ask them. Or you can see who's written a chapter in a veterinary textbook about, you know, that hints at something that you think might have the answer for your dog. You can contact the person who wrote that. In Denmark or whatever and see if they'll answer your questions. And I guess because of the journalism background, I had I was deluded enough to think that they might actually respond to me and they might actually answer. And did they? And they did. Yeah.
1: Because they want to help. So we now live in a pretty extraordinary world. Not only can you find these people, but there's this whole thing of telemedicine, other than like, you know, sending back and forth emails. Did you have any telemedicine sessions with doctors who are not around locally?
0: With that, I I tried to do that at one point with the guy who designed the protocol that Shiva was being treated according to who mm-hmm. was in the UK and I was in Australia. And what I ran up against there was he wouldn't do it because of some law, mm. because my dog wasn't technically his patient, he hadn't put the hands on the dog, he was citing some law that made it you know, illegal for him to Mm. really offer an opinion. I'm not sure if that was actually the case or if it was that he knew the specialist who was my dog's doctor and didn't want to step on toes. Because, you know, telemedicine, as you say, happens all the time. It can be done.
1: And I just kind of want to dig into this a little bit more because I think this is a, a common thing that a lot of dog lovers have experienced when they have a particularly thorny veterinary issue that veterinarians are reluctant to to say bad things about their colleague.
0: I definitely think there is that. There's probably that in human medicine mm-hmm. as well because they do know each other and even uh, internationally they know each other because they go to conferences and when you get into a really high area of specialty, you know, they they know who's authored papers and they they they're connected. So it is difficult. It's definitely difficult. And I think vets themselves acknowledge that it's a, in many ways, conservative profession that changes, takes a long time to affect, and it's difficult to speak out of school. I mean, you even see that with raw feeding.
1: Well, I think veterinary medicine has an extra layer on top of all of that, which is that it is a discretionary spend economically. People, you know, it is a business, right? This is not state health care. This is a business and the specialists charge more money and it sounds like they have a very small connected network and so they are in effect business people as well.
0: Oh yeah and they've got the market cornered. How I'm expensive
1: like has this Odyssey been with with your dog?
0: Oh God I mean it, it'd be
1: Have you added it up?
0: Uh, oh, I shudder to think it would be uh, certainly thousands probably you know just getting diagnosed was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to do these diagnostic procedures and, you know, and then the snowballing effect of the health problems and the constant, you know, there was a time there where we were back and forth to emergency vets paying exorbitant fees for, you know, middle-of-the-night appointments, Mm -hmm. you know, weekly. It it was just hideous. And then once you realised something was amiss with the treatment trying to get help from another specialist. There were no other neurologists, but there were internal medicine specialists who, you know, some of their area overlapped and they might be able to help. So there were, you know, I was going and taking him to that kind of a specialist as well, trying to get some a different insight into what was going on. And they helpfully told me, get him off the prednisone. That's how you fix this. Like, well, yeah, like <laughs> that's apparent now, but we'll put on the prednisone Because we're told that's the only way to... And then finally, we mentioned telemedicine. Finally, at the end of all this, when we were coming off the prednisone, I did a telehealth consult with a holistic doctor, finally consulted a holistic veterinarian Mm -hmm. in another part of the country, and um, only to have them tell me that the entire thing could have been treated without prednisone from the beginning. Wish you'd contacted us then. You didn't have to go down this path.
1: That must have been tough news to hear. So is that, is all of this information that you have gleaned from ventricle professionals around the world and people who've also been through it, is that the basis for putting together Super Canine?
0: Yeah. So the book, it was another evolution further along from that. So once my eyes were opened to the fact that not everything that your vet told you was necessarily going to be right. And that I started questioning and trying to understand the basis for every single bit of veterinary advice I then got from that point forward or that I had ever gotten in the care of, you know, how to raise a dog from the very first veterinary appointment I ever had with Shiva, because you know, once you get through the dire trying to keep him alive through the disease, I then tried to understand why he'd gotten sick in the first place. And that's what really led to the book because I ended up understanding that I had laid the groundwork for him to get sick.
1: How were you a culprit in all of this?
0: It was vets will tell you this condition, SRMA, autoimmune meningitis. We don't know what causes it. It's one of those, you know, immune system going haywire. We don't know why type of things, right? But I don't think that's I don't think that's the size of it. I think from everything that I've been able to glean. It's every decision I had ever made up to that point. From the moment I brought him home, decisions about vaccinations, decisions about chemical wormers, flea and tick treatments, heart wormers, uh, tapewormers—you know all these things—we have our dogs ingest. Down to things like chemicals that I use in the house, weed killers that are sprayed on the grass where he plays every day, you know, you know, we were living in the city. It was going to public parks. Those places that now I know drenched Mm -hmm. in herbicides. That's what makes the grass green. Exactly. Yeah. Like you can see those iridescent fields now and you're like, oh my God, like, yeah, like that's a (laughs) sure sign. You do not want to walk your dog there, you know, and food, food's a huge one. And as part of food, fasting, fasting is probably one of the biggest game changers for us in terms of healing Shiva and, you know, understanding why he got in the state his body was in in the first place. It's all these little things that can be part of the way we look after our dogs that can prevent and heal disease, but but that aren't, you know, in there normally as part of normal dog husbandry.
1: (laughs) So what is your approach to feeding and fasting?
0: So I raw feed him, but it's not just raw feeding. It's the way you raw feed matters, you know, because at the time that he got sick, he was eating pre-made, you know, pre-packaged raw. But as a puppy, he'd eaten kibble and we'd tried every type of dog food. So now I understand that it's not just raw, it's how you do the raw that can make a difference. So your your question is what how do I feed him now? Yeah. So I home prepare raw from whole cuts. So I don't buy any dog food.
1: So you get you get a slab of cow? What do you what do you start with?
0: Yeah, so I've just started accessing cows from farmers direct from farms. So you can buy like half a cow and put it fill your freezer mm-hmm. with it. But you know, what I'm doing until I begin that, get that delivery next month is you know, it's just, it's a butcher or a supermarket. I buy his food where I buy my food mm-hmm. and it, it's literally the three components of raw food. So edible bone, lean muscle meat, that's important that it be lean and a little bit of organ meat. You know, that's basically mm-hmm. what he eats. And the type of raw feeding I do is called rotational mono feeding which is, you know, we talk a lot, I guess, about bath feeding and mm-hmm. pre-model raw, and those are the two types of raw feeding that get most talked about. But there's a third type, which I think from everything I've researched is the type that most closely resembles a natural canine diet and feeding pattern, and that's where the fasting comes in. Because dogs in the wild, mm. you know, feeding dogs every day, that's a human invention.
1: Or three meals a day. So how long do you fast your dog, Shiva?
0: So I fast Shiva at least once a week for an entire day. And, you know, it varies. It depends. You can feed them every second day. You can feed them three or four days in a row and then not feed them for two, three days. Sounds crazy, doesn't it?
1: So a normal day, a non-fast day, how many meals does Shiva get?
0: I would like to feed him one. But because he's a boxer Mm -hmm. and they're prone to, they're said to be prone to bloat. And one of the contributing factors to bloat is understood to be eating one large meal per day. Mm -hmm. So what I do is feed him, uh, I split his meal into two, but I feed it close together, like at the same end of the day. So three hours apart. So I'm trying to mitigate the bloat risk, Mm -hmm. but still not be having him eating all the time because digestive rest is really important to you know, health and supporting a dog's body to detox. And uh, oh it's a, where do you want to go? There's so much to talk about in this space. It's yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's like, if you feed your dog twice a day, every day, what I've learned is that there's so many reasons not to do that. Some of the, the most convincing ones that I'm aware of are that if your dog is constantly digesting food, the liver never reaches its full metabolism. So a dog's, stomach is built to function best with periods of total emptiness. And when in a fasted state, the dogs, that's when the liver begins metabolizing fat. And it's in the fat that the body parks toxins So, you know, in the course of every day, your body, your dog's body, all our bodies are bombarded with toxins from a variety of sources. The liver is part of the inbuilt detox mechanism. Filtering system. Right. And what it can't fully deal with at the time, it parks in adipose or fatty tissue. Mm -hmm. And if the body is never allowed to fully metabolize, the toxins accumulate to the point where you then get symptoms. And so it's important to allow the body to get into a fasted state to sort of catch up on the backlog of detox and get those toxins out on a regular basis so that they don't accumulate to the point where you start seeing symptoms that typically arise first in the skin or eyes or ears or pores.
1: So when you do a fasting day is it like you try to do the same day every week?
0: No, nope, doesn't matter. It's as random as it would be. The randomness is kind of deliberate. Mm. So in nature, right? Like a dog eats when a dog can catch the prey, right? And sometimes it's there. Fast or feast. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what you want to try and mimic.
1: Has what you've learned about raw and about fasting, did you apply that to your own life as well? Your own Mm. diet?
0: Yeah. See, this is the kind of unsettling thing that happens. Once you understand these principles, you then do start to question and see their application everywhere in everything, including in your own diet. And yeah, so yep, I do try and fast. It's harder for humans because we've got all these like, you know, emotional attachments to food and we don't just do what we're told and we complain and bitch and moan. And (laughs) so, yeah, but I I think there is a well-established body of evidence in science about the benefits of fasting for every organism from single-celled yeast to dog, to human, mm-hmm. it's good for all of us. And the more you can do it, the better.
1: So why did you write Super Canine?
0: I wrote Super Canine because I was stunned to discover how wrong all the ideas I had about how to raise a healthy dog were. And I could see that other people didn't know this either. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like I needed to get it out there. I kind of had to get it out of my system because I ended up quite angry and, you know, disillusioned at how far wrong I'd gone while thinking I was doing everything right and taking the advice of my vets. And so I wanted to put it down, what I wish I'd been told and what I thought could spare others the disease that my, you know, young dog had ended up with as a result of all these mistakes I'd made.
1: And what's the reception the book has received?
0: It's been positive. It's been, you know, that, that people don't know this. It's not that the information isn't out there, but this brings it all together in one place and makes it doable, I think.
1: And does coming from a, a non-veterinarian make it more accessible?
0: I think it does because you are trying to break it down and you're trying to make it understandable and work out how it it applies to your dog and i think the trouble is a conventionally trained vet doesn't tell you this for a whole host of reasons everything from the fact that you know we know that in vet school canine nutrition forms like a slither if if you're lucky of of their education curriculum Like, you know, I looked at one of the big prestigious vet schools in the States of what the classes were through a whole four-year degree, and there's one class on nutrition and it covers like cats and dogs and horses in one semester. And vet schools are sponsored by kibble companies. and
1: That's the other thing is a lot of times there's a deep relationship between the animal food company and the curriculum when it comes to nutrition.
0: Yeah, and it's not just that. It's There's other drivers of the other advice that you typically get from a conventionally trained vet. So, you know, it's um, normal and expected and equated with responsible dog ownership that you neuter or spay your dog. But there too, there's a whole heap of evidence that actually from a health perspective, it's far better to leave your dog intact and that there are health consequences to removing the hormone-producing sex organs, especially if you do it before a dog's mature.
1: So how is Shiva doing now?
0: Shiva's got a quality of life now back. He's not the same. He's not the dog that he should have been. You know, he's got permanent damage. We're still working on trying to get his gut healed. We have trouble keeping weight on him. He's still got huge lumps on his shoulders and on his rib cage from the side effects of the prednisone the calcinosis that that caused mm-hmm. yeah he's he's a lot better but he bears the scars of it for sure
1: so is this your path for now Gene?
0: yeah this is what life handed me so <laughs> yeah and you know one thing leads to another and you find that it helps people and so you keep doing it
1: awesome Gene cohen thank you so much for being with us thank you if folks want to get in touch with you what's the best way
0: Best ways through BoxerDogDiaries.com. Just contact me through the website.
1: You can find Jane's book and more about boxers on her blog, which is Boxer Dog Diaries. We have a link in the show notes for today's episode. We reached out to Jane to see what she's up to these days, and she has some pretty exciting news. She has developed an online class about raw feeding that helps owners transition their dogs to raw feeding Diets. The course shows owners step-by-step how to prepare and properly compose raw, meaty, bone-based diet. The link to that is also in today's show notes. Well, that is all we have time for on this episode of The Long Leash, but I want to encourage you to check out our past episodes. And you can do that on our website at longleashshow.com. That's also where you can get links if you want to subscribe either in this podcast app or on YouTube or any of the other places we're available. And also, it's a great way for you to reach out and talk to us and suggest guests who may be appropriate for this program. I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I want to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Does the act of taking paper to pen and writing help to heal a broken heart after your dog dies? Sheila Cooperman says yes. She joins us on Dog Cancer Answers to tell her true tale about Tucker, her dog who died last year from lymphoma. Sheila shares how writing about him is helping her heal not only from his loss, but from other heartbreaks as well. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts and at dogcancer.com slash podcast.